So the tangents are something that you often see in the elite race, right? Where like in a major, for example, like all the majors have a blue line and that is the tangent. The blue line is where the measured course is. So if you can run the blue line, you're going to run 26.2. If you run off the blue line, you are not going to be taking the most efficient measured route and therefore you may run further. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. Hi, and welcome to episode 27 of Runner Clicks, the Passionate Runner podcast. I am your host, Whitney Hines. I'm a lifelong runner, a certified running coach, and founder of TheMotherRunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And today, we are interviewing three-time Olympic trials qualifier and founder of the Run Coaching Group, Get Running Coaching, uh, Neely Gracie. She's also the author of the new women's running book called Breakthrough. And we are going to talk about racing strategies. So how to prepare for race day before you get to the start line. And then after you cross that start line and all the things that can come up, I selfishly am really interested in this conversation as I've gotten back into racing this fall after a very long break and realizing that I have a lot of areas to work on. Some more about Neely. She's a 436 miler, a 109 half marathoner, and a 234 marathoner. She began running in eighth grade and quickly saw success, which deepened her motivation to pursue big goals. It started at a high school level where she won four Pennsylvania state championships. Upon graduation, she attended Shippensburg University and became an eight-time D2 national champion. During Neely's time at SU, she studied human communication with a coaching minor because she knew she wanted to become a pro athlete and then start coaching other runners towards their goals. In 2012, she signed her first pro contract, and in 2013, Get Running Coaching was born. The business has continued to grow, as has Neely's family, with the additions of her two sons, Athens in 2018 and Rome in 2021. She believes coaching helps inspire her to keep working towards her goals as a runner, coach, and mother. Neely is a three-time Olympic trials qualifier. I'm going to predict that she's going to be a four-time Olympic trials qualifier here pretty soon at the California International Marathon. Just putting that out there. Neely was the top American at the 2016 Boston Marathon and is the 11th American female ever to break 70 minutes in the half marathon. And as I mentioned, Neely recently released her book for female runners called Breakthrough. So be sure to check that out. We're going to get to our conversation with Neely about racing strategies after the short message from our sponsor, Runner Click. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. It is so great to have you back on the show. Thank you. It's always fun to get to chat with you guys. Yes, it is so fun. I would love to run with you one day, maybe, but I'm hoping maybe I can see you in real life at CIM. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'd love that. Yeah. So funny, not a funny story, but like small world. I was warming up with Beth Herndon, who lives here in Knoxville, who's an incredible runner. She's qualified for the trials twice already. And yeah, she mentioned that you are her coach, which I didn't realize. She and I were running a race like a few weeks ago in Middle Tennessee. But yeah, so I didn't realize that you coached her, which is so fun. Yeah, that's awesome. It's actually you're the second person to tell me a very similar story. Someone else messaged me on Instagram, someone that I ran with all through high school and college, we competed against each other. And then she went out for a run with one of my athletes and was like, Oh, I didn't know you coached her. She's one of my good friends. So I love the small community of the running world. It really is like, it's so awesome. I mean, like I got to meet one of my athletes face to face 
yesterday at a race in the Atlanta area. And like, I ran into a bunch of people from Instagram and both of the races that I've done recently where, you know, they came up, oh, are you Whitney from Mother Runners? And oh yeah, I recognize you. Like, it's so cool. The running community is so cool. And I feel like, you know, there's good and bad things about social media. I think maybe you and I touched on that the last time we chatted, but like, there is a lot of good, which is like, it's just kind of shrinking this already like rich community and making those connections stronger. And so, okay, so you're going to CIM. Beth is going to be at CIM. I'm going to be there. How is your training going? Yeah, it's been going really well. I've been having a lot of fun, healthy. I feel good. It's been exciting to kind of just see the weeks build upon each other. I'm someone that really likes longer buildups. And so I started my training in August for CIM. And yeah, it's progressing better than I expected. I did a little like tune up two weeks ago and just like a local half marathon and surprised myself, which always feels good. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what, how was it? What did, what did you expect to do? And then what happened? Yeah. So I, I ran the Boulder Thon, which is a half marathon. It's new to this area. It was only the second year that they had it, but they have a 10 K or 5K, 10K, half marathon, and marathon. So it's like a whole weekend of running. And it started out at the Boulder Reservoir, ran on the dirt roads for a bit, and then kind of ran bike paths all the way into Boulder and finished on Pearl Street, which is kind of that infamous spot in downtown. And so it was like the perfect running weather day, like just gorgeous conditions, no wind, blue skies, like a little bit of fall crispness to the air. So couldn't complain at all. But yeah, I ran a 118 half marathon in June here in Colorado. And I was kind of hoping to run like 117 because we have the altitude conversion and everything. And so that seemed to be like, okay, that puts me on track. So where I want my fitness to be. And I ended up running 116 Oh nine or something like that. So Amazing. That's the goal. Yeah. And felt pretty good doing it. And so anyways, I'm running indie half in two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks a little less now. than two. And so that'll be nice to kind of, I haven't raced at sea level since August of 2017 was kind of my like last pro race when I ran Falmouth and then I ran Houston in 2020 to qualify for the trials, but that was a little bit of like a Hail Mary and I wasn't yeah. prepared or anything at that point. You basically decided to start running when you were supposed to start tapering, essentially. Um, so I don't really count that as an official race because it was not at all how I would typically prepare for a race. So yeah, I feel like I've missed this, this whole thing and I've missed the grind of of marathon training. Yes, I am with you. You know, I've been out of it for like three years and it's been so great to be back. So have you met Laura Norris? I don't think so. Okay. So she lives in Erie in the Boulder area and I had her, you and Laura are the, my first repeat interviews on this podcast. She's a running coach and she's super knowledgeable, mm-hmm. but that she just moved out to the Boulder area, like in the springtime, I think. And so we were talking about the L2. She's also running CIM talking about like how she's not sure how much of a boost the altitude will give her. Have you, so you're able to speak to it personally though, right? Like how has it affected you? It's super interesting out here because a lot of people who train here don't adjust for altitude. And so mm. like they'll run their goal marathon pace and their marathon pace tempos and stuff. And for me, I've never really responded well to that. I've always kind of all my paces are always adjusted to the appropriate effort, which means a little bit slower here, a little faster at sea level. And so I think that's kind of unique. So when I coach local runners, I'm always kind of making their VDOT pace be, you know, maybe one or two notches lower than where they would typically be. So if someone's trying to run a three hour marathon, I have them training for more like a 310. And then that means that they're running like the appropriate effort levels. So that's, you know, everyone kind of has a different approach, I guess. And it also timing wise, like when you leave altitude and you go down to sea level, there's like a window as to when your body kind of feels 
good with the change and when you kind of go flat with the change. And so everyone has to kind of figure out what works best for them. I've always kind of done best. Like if I have Sunday race, then I would fly in Friday, you know, afternoon or whatever. And then I'd have Friday evening, all day, Saturday race Sunday. And that timing was always kind of right for me, but you know, I've had races that have been just fine where, you know, cause like the majors like Boston and New York, when I ran those, they require that you fly in several days ahead because of all the media stuff that they have to go through and drug testing and everything ahead of the race. So, you know, it was like, even though these are big races and this is my typically good window, like I have to be flexible and adapt and go in three or four days ahead instead of the two days out. So you kind of just figure it out and you roll with what you can. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm kind of surprised that like the benefits would dissipate so quickly because I feel like like remember reading in the Jack Daniels book, I think like that the window is usually a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, so the benefits like with the blood levels and all of that last for several weeks, but it's just how the body kind of responds to change. So it's kind of similar with someone from sea level coming up to altitude. Like you actually will feel good for the first two days because you still have some of that like oxygen in your system. And then the third and fourth day is when you feel the worst because your body is all of a sudden like realizing what's going on and is kind of by it. And so it's just your body adapting to a change of, you know, what it's used to and like messing up the equilibrium in some little way. Right. Yeah. So that like, it's almost like that's an added insult to just everything that with tapering and all that, like the status quo is rocked and your body's like, okay, where's my new homeostasis? I'm not quite sure. So I guess it kind of manifests itself in just lethargy or? Yeah. Typically you just feel a little off. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? To me, I'm like, I just want to lay on the couch and eat a lot of carbs. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. So, you know, and again, it's like, you know, most things, (laughs) everyone responds differently and there's no exact Mm. situation. So you have to just figure it out. And often that's trial and error. Yeah. And try not to overthink it because sometimes it's out of your control and just, which is like a great segue into race strategy, right? Which is kind of what we're here to talk about because I selfishly really want to pick your brain because I actually have not really raced that much in my lifetime. Like when I started to get more competitive is when I got injured and now just getting out of my three-year race hiatus. And so I haven't really, like, I've always thought about it just kind of being like, you know, all the preparation is in the training and then you just show up and do your best. But there's also a lot of like tactical things you should do. And then just like mindset shifts and just, I don't know, just there is a lot more, you know, reading the competition around you, how to use your like surroundings to fuel you or give you a boost. And so it's a lot of things that I haven't really thought about. And I really want to know from like a racing pro, which would be you, like get inside your brain and kind of hear some of your tricks. So I think we'll start first with sort of the tactical things, like, for example, running the tangents, which is finding the shortest distance between, you know, two points. Can you elaborate a bit more on that one in particular? Because I think where it becomes tricky is like, A, if you don't know the course and there's a lot of turns and B, if there's people around you and so you feel like you're boxed in or you can't get that shortest distance. So can you share some knowledge on how to do that one? Totally. Well, I will start by saying that I've raced about five times in the last five years. So, however, prior to that, I would race like eight to 12 times a year. And I've coached about, you know, several hundred athletes in these five years that have all been racing. So hopefully I can, you know, have some insight to share here regarding this topic. But yeah, so the tangents are something that you often see in the elite race, right? Where like in a major, for example, like all the majors have a blue line and that is the tangent. The blue line is where the measured course is. So if you can run the blue line, you're going to run 26.2. If you run off the blue line, you are not going to be taking the most efficient measured route 
and therefore you may run further. (laughs) (laughs) Which I got to tell you, it is a bad feeling when you run a race and it's like yesterday I ran a half and it said like 13.35. I'm like, man, come on. I thought I was running the tangents. There was no blue line. (laughs) Right. So we're dealing with watch error as well. Watches are not exact. We love to think that our watch is going to be perfect. However, GPS watches work by dropping tiny little pins and then connecting the pins. So if you've ever done a workout on a track with a GPS watch, your watch is not accurate. And it's because it's dropping pins in a circle and it's connecting the pins. And when you're constantly turning, those pins are not correct. If you are running perfectly straight down a road, you are going to have a lot more accuracy with your GPS connecting the pins. So that being said, if you run a race that is a certified measured course, yes, there are tangent issues that potentially you ran slightly further. But if you're running 13.3 for a 13.1, there's also likely GPS error. Yeah, as part of it. I did not know that. Great yeah. point. So, you know, don't get too caught up in it. I've had athletes who are like, oh my gosh, the course was not accurate. And I'm like, no, it's okay. (laughs) um, It was your watch. Be mad at your watch. Mm -hmm. Like as much as we love our watches, they also are not perfect. (laughs) (laughs) They're definitely not perfect. (laughs) Watch relationship can be a challenge too. So when it comes to the tangents, it's best to take the turns, right? Like you want to utilize the whole street. If you have the whole street, take advantage of the whole street and take your turns accordingly. That's just going to help you create the lines. It also can just give you something to really stay focused and engaged on throughout the course. That's something that it keeps your eyes up. It keeps you focused on where you're going and it allows you to set up, you know, to the best of your ability, a, you know, the shortest route possible. Uh, And when you say take the turns accordingly, you mean like, I mean, cut the cut the turns as close as you can without slowing down too much, right? Correct. It's really tricky to explain that. So like, for example, like if you have out and backs, like those turns are really hard to navigate. Like when you're yeah, at K- I hate those. 180, like it's very challenging. However, if you have just like normal turns, like you're making a left onto this street and a right onto this street, then you kind of want to go wide to start, but then cut straight across so that instead of, you know, making a 90 degree turn while you're running, you kind of go wide to begin. And then you can take like a straight route that, hopefully allows you to not break stride as much. So this is all fine and dandy, except for if you're in a big pack of people, like you can be the one on the inside of the turn that gets stuck and is literally just like stopped waiting for everyone else around you who went a little wider to take that turn. So, you know, it's, it's tricky. The turns out there, you have to kind of make sure that you know what's ahead. So then you can get on the outside. So you're not the one boxed in on the middle or like on the middle or inside of the turn. And you can take it a little bit wider to begin, but then cut it sharper on the other side so that you can keep that momentum to the best of your ability. So is there any etiquette that you practice when you're running like side by side with other people? Or are you just kind of like, I'm going to do what's best for me? I mean, it's definitely rude and like frowned upon <laughs> to like totally cut someone off on a turn. So if you have to go a little bit wider so that you aren't just like pushing someone off the street, <laughs> that's, you know, an important thing to do. And the hardest part is like turns early in the race, because that's when you're going to be like the most crowded and like yeah. most people kind of around you. And so you can see like the half marathon that I did, it did two miles straight out before the first turn. So that way it could kind of thin out before you hit that first turn, which is pretty nice. And then it was two miles back. And then we started on the bike paths. So that way, by the time we hit the bike paths, it had kind of spread out versus hitting the bike paths right at the beginning because then it would have been a lot more crowded. So that was helpful. And so you'll see some races kind of plan ahead for that, recognizing that in the first couple of miles or when the pack is going to be like a little bit more tight and it's going to be a little bit more crowded and need some more space. Okay. Thank you. That's good. That's good. Good stuff. All right. So I know that you as an elite get bottles, but for, you know, the rest of us, we have to deal with water cups. 
which I just find so awkward. I mean, like trying to run and grab it and not have it spill all over you and all over the people. And like yesterday at my race, they weren't even handing out the cups. Like you had to run to the table and grab it. And then so like you're coming to a complete stop every couple of miles and you're like trying to, okay, is this Gatorade? Is this what, you know, what advice do you have for navigating water stops and not letting them like trip you up and break your stride? Oh, well, in the half that I did, I was very bad at my water stops. And it reminded me that cups are really challenging. They are. They really are. The, the thing that I noticed was like, I got barely anything. Like, yes, because it spills out. We didn't have them filled up enough. And then by the time like half of it spilled, there was like half a sip left. Right. And so I was definitely kind of bummed with that and it made me realize that it's something I need to practice. And so I think that's the biggest thing is practicing. I think the cups they used, they were like a paper cup and they didn't like fold very well. And so mm-hmm. always my tip is like, you grab the cup, you squeeze the top. So you close the top. And when you close the top, then you're going to spill less. And then you're kind of making like a little funnel that you can... And so that's what I always try to do. But these ones, like they were too hard and they didn't squeeze well. So I couldn't really get the top closed before most of it spilled out. So with my athletes, I always tell them, grab two cups every single stop. Every single water stop, capitalize on the two cups because you know you're only getting an ounce or two out of each cup. And so over the course of a marathon, you're going to need every single stop with two cups each to get in the appropriate amount of fluids that you need for that distance. But, you know, I have some athletes who are like, look, that doesn't work for me. I know that I need to get in, you know, at least 32 ounces on the course or whatever. And they're like, and I like to be able to put exactly what I want in my bottle. And I've had athletes who run with their handheld bottle or they run with their vest because they find that, it is better for them to have to carry a little extra weight with the bottles than it is to have all the chaos of the, the water stops. And again, there you're running into, you know, if you're trying to run with a pace group, for example, like there's 45 people all trying to grab water cups at the same station and you're like getting tripped and falling and people are throwing cups and you're slipping on them and it, it can be such a disaster. And so, you know, I've had athletes who have chosen to just carry their own fluids out there or they'll take a bottle for the first half or something like that cups after that to ensure that they get in, you know, 16 ounces in the first half. So then they can take cups for the rest of it because the first half is when, you know, in the marathon distance is when it's most critical to get in your fueling and your hydration. And so that's, what's going to help you in the second half. And in that final 10 K where you aren't going to be bonking and hitting the wall and all those things, if you capitalized on the first half with your fueling and hydration. So, you know, I've had athletes do that, you know, in smaller races, sometimes people hand you bottles, not for the elites, we're not allowed to do that. But for the general masses, it's not frowned upon to be handed a bottle out there. So if you wanted to run, you know, for the first 10k with a bottle, drop it, and then you're going to meet someone at half and they were going to hand you another bottle. You know, I've had athletes who have done that as well. So there's definitely some ways around it. But the cup thing can be challenging. And if Cups are what you need to do. You need to practice with what fluids are going to be on course. So, you know, for example, at CIM, they have noon endurance. I think it's the lemon lime or whatever. So it's like, you need to look up the flavor. You need to look up exactly what it is. You need to mix it exactly appropriately. And then you need to practice with it in your training so that you're ready to go on race day. In the past, we've talked about on this show, like setting up a table and practice like running by it or practice running past someone holding a cup for you and probably trying it on either side because sometimes you know the water stops are on your left side and so you're using your non-dominant hand for example great to practice i mean you have to be willing to you know really be organized (laughs) you have to have a loop that's like you know okay it's a two mile loop or whatever and so every time i come around i'm gonna get my water and You know, you have to make sure that it's in a place where people aren't going to mess with your cups. And, you know, it it can be a whole thing. You know, sometimes people will like training groups will set up like supported long runs and they'll do kind of like that sort of thing where they'll set up a table and it'll be cups or bottles and you can practice and do that, which is really helpful. And then, 
you know, you can also just sign up for like one or two <laughs> races and utilize the races as part of that experience. So, you know, having those practice sessions can be really helpful, not only as like a little tune up to get into race mode and kind of remember how to do your whole race routine, but for race specific things like this, where you're practicing getting in your cups and figuring out, you know, getting more comfortable with those sort of things so that when it's goal race day, you've had some practice ahead of time. That is a great tip. I'm now I'm like rethinking what I will do on race day. And I'm thinking I may just have to, you know, suck it up and carry a bottle or something just to not mess with the whole shenanigans of the water stop because it's, it's a mess. I mean, it's just, it's chaotic. And it's just, I don't know if there's like a physical way that you can keep running fast and grab a cup and not right. spill it everywhere and well, you be able like to drink throw it your down. breathing rhythm off. You throw your stride off. Yeah. I remember in Houston when I was running with the OTQ group, girls fell at one of the water stops because everyone's kind of crossing to try and get them and you're bumping into people. And then it also, you know, it goes back to like the whole idea with the tangents, like in the first 10 K is when it's going to be the busiest and most crowded and bunched up. And that's like really important <laughs> time and window to get those early stops in. So, you know, even if you carry a bottle for the first 10 K and then after that you start doing cups, it still will be easier on you. Yes. Yes. And it kind of is a good way to like mentally break up the race too. Like, oh, I'm going to run with this bottle for the first half. And then after that, like, oh, my arm is free and I'm lightened up. And maybe you have somebody meet you at like mile 18 or something like that. Okay. So any other like little tactical things before we, I want to, I'm breaking this up into two parts. And the second part I want to talk about like mind shift and also like how to use your feed off your competitors and what's around you. So any other like little tactical things that you remind your athletes before they hit the start line? Yeah, well, along kind of the same lines of practicing, it's really important and helpful to practice what you're going to wear on race day. When you're looking at, you know, what shoes are you wearing? What clothes are you going to be wearing? And making sure that everything kind of works well for you. And you know, I know it sounds kind of silly, but you want to make sure that like you've controlled everything that you can on race day when there's inevitably things that, you know, you didn't think of or things you can't control whenever those happen, like you at least have, you know, the things that you are in control of dialed in. So, you know, make sure that the socks that you have are socks that you've, you know, done workouts in or long runs in, and they don't give you blisters Make sure that, you know, the shoes that you have, you feel good and you feel comfortable wearing and make sure that, you know, the clothes you have aren't chafing or that you feel comfortable in them, like comfortable in what you're racing is really important. Right. Yeah. And I would say, make sure you know where you're going to carry all your nutrition too. Right. Because like, you're going to need a lot of gels. Have, yeah. Do your shorts have pockets? Are you stuffing in your sports bra? Are you going to, you know, wear a spy belt? what's your plan there? So I like to, if an athlete doesn't have a race or two on the schedule ahead of their goal race, I like to have them do like a simulation type of workout in a long run where they're doing like a long tempo within the long run, you know, or throwing in some race pace stuff into a long run. So that way it's like, okay, do your dress rehearsal, wear all your things, practice all your gels according, practice your fluids, what you're going to do, what you're going to drink out there and kind of mentally prepare as well, which is something that you know we're about to talk about. But like you can in that simulation really be thinking through your race and like, where would I be on the race course right now? And these are the things I need to tell myself when I'm out there. I'm going to stay focused. I'm going to stay relaxed. I'm going to have my mantras ready to go. I'm going to visualize, you know, things going smoothly and me being in control. And so, you know, you can do that in, you know, races ahead of time, which you know, is kind of my plan where I did the Boulder Thon, I'm doing the Indy Half, and then I'm doing CIM as the main. And that's kind of how I always like to split it up is like one a month leading into a big race. But if, you know, you don't have the ability to get in those races, or that's not something that, you know, work is exciting to you, there are other ways to do it. And that is kind of incorporating these simulation long runs. 
Okay. Yeah. I, practice is perfect. Before we move to mind, the mental game, what do you use? Where do you keep all of your nutrition or do you just get it from fluids? It's interesting that you ask those questions. Over the course of <laughs> the last, let's see, almost seven years, six and a half years from the time I did my first marathon, which was Boston 2016, I've learned a lot. So Boston 2016, I did Osmo fluids only on course and I had bottles and I just got my nutrition through the bottles. It was kind of a warm day. Fluid went down pretty well. I didn't have it exactly perfect because the moment I crossed the finish line, I threw up everywhere. So, you know, it didn't quite sit well, but you know, I didn't bunk and it did give me energy to get through. Fast forward to New York, 2016. And I was doing gels. I was sponsored by Power Bar at the time. And I had I was really struggling with taking the gels. Like I would get instant side sti- side stitches. And so I started watering the gels down. So I would like in my bottle put like six ounces of fluid. And then I would put my gel in the bottle, mix it up, and then I wasn't getting the side stitches because it was like diluted as I was taking it in. Well, then I had an issue with that because they had our bottles and coolers and the gel like solidified and froze to the bottom. So I got like nothing during that race. And I bonked the last 5k because I took in like no calories during the run. Um, So (laughs) I had to rethink what I'm going to do. And at Houston, I didn't have bottles until like the week before. So I had planned to just take water on course and I just had my sports bra stuffed with gels and that was my goal. And then one week before they were like, oh, someone dropped out. We'll give you bottles. And I was like, great. I like didn't practice with bottles at all. So I haven't like practiced with any other fluid. I was just doing water since that's what I was going to take on course. So I ended up just putting water in my bottles and then I took the Martin gels and it wasn't enough. I needed some kind of electrolyte out there. Yeah. So I realized, okay, I got to rethink this and figure it out. So right now I do Martin gels and I do scratch as my fluids. And I, and you alternate the scratch with water with I the Martin gels or you, okay. I just done scratch with Martin. And in my long runs, I've just been wearing a vest and I carry 30 ounces of scratch and I carry like three gels for my long runs at this point. I'll work up to four gels during the long runs. And that's been totally fine. And I've done great. I have Honey Singer chews like right before I head out the door. I have a Honey Singer waffle with coffee like an hour, hour and a half more. And then I do the Martin, ge- the Martin gels and the scratch. And that's what's worked really well for me. I've just been carrying my own fluids and gels and... I feel so much better training with them and awesome. I feel like really dialed in. So this is the first time I, long story, <laughs> that yeah. I actually feel really good about my plan and what I've been doing has been working really well. I feel, you know, I walk back in the door and it's like, okay, I'm on as mom for the rest of the day. Right. Exactly. There's yeah. No time to like lounge around like I used to and be fatigued from my long run all day. It's like, I'm out jumping on the trampoline with my kids for, you know. Right. I know. I had the exact same conversation when I interviewed Laura. Mm-hmm. It was like the getting, nailing your nutrition during your training runs. It's like you come in the door and you're like, all right, Whose problem am I solving? What fort am I building? Whose breakfast am I making? Like it makes such a big difference. Good. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, I figured out like I'm, I wasn't taking in enough hydration Mm -hmm. in my long runs and electrolytes. So now I've been using, I stick like some salt tabs in my sports bra and then like take those and I'm going to have like a, just a total buffet of gels for CIM because I'm doing, I'm using like three different kinds on my training runs because they all like have their different perks to, well, you know, once you figure out kind of what works. And again, this is all a trial and error it has to be practiced in your long runs consistently throughout the whole buildup. And that's another reason why I'm a big fan of extended buildups, you know, for people who only have eight week or 12 week buildups, it's like, by the time you get to your long runs, you have four good ones and that's it. And it's like, if you don't have your nutrition and everything dialed in and figured out at that point, like you're kind of screwed. And yeah, for me, it's like, if I have a 
24 weeks of long runs and stuff that I can really work and dial all that in, then I can be like, okay, I know. Like I started, I used to always do beet nitrates before long runs. And this is back when I was more of like a 5K, 10K runner. And it worked for me. I always felt really good. Well, marathon training is different when your long run is, you know, 13 or 14 versus 20. And I started to notice it was just kind of wrecking my stomach. So I did a couple long runs with it. And I was like, nope, I think that's the culprit stopped using it. And my stomach was fine. And so I was like, okay, that's it. But I was able to figure it out because I have, you know, lots of long runs on the calendar. Yeah. And you have to try it yourself. You can't be like, oh, well, this is what my friend does. So that's what I'm going to try on race day because everybody's stomach is different. I mean, otherwise there wouldn't be so many choices in fueling because yeah, our biology is different. Okay. So I want to talk about a couple of race day situations. Let's go first with If you're running, I'm going to say, I'm going to go here because this is what happened to me yesterday. I was running all by myself the entire race. Like there was nobody around me. It was awesome because I was like, oh, I'm going to win. This is great. But it was all, you know, I'm following the motorcade. But like, that's all I did was look at this motorcade in front of me, you know, the blue lights for 13 miles. And I had a really tough time finding an net. Like I was way off what my race plan was like way off. So I just kind of settled in and was like, I'm going to turn this into a workout, but I mentally just could not shift into the next gear. Have you found yourself in that situation or like when people are running, you know, it's a spread out race and you're running by yourself. It can be really hard not to have those like external cues to kind of kick it in and pass someone or stay with someone. If you found yourself in that situation, like what kind of helps you just keep pushing and not just settle into your comfort zone? Totally. It's really interesting. So, you know, I'd say since high school, I've had a lot of solo efforts and, you know, that's kind of, I guess, (laughs) the double-edged sword of being, you know, one of the top runners in your state and everything like that. So I would... I guess from a young age, I had to kind of figure out like, how do I push myself? How do I stay engaged? How do I stay focused out here? And in high school, we weren't allowed to wear watches. So it's not even like I could be like, okay, I'm going to focus on pace or I'm going to focus on, you know, where, how many more minutes I have left to go or whatever. And so I started to count my strides. And so I would sink my breathing to my strides. Every fourth step was one. And so I would count up to 100 and then I'd start over and I'd count up to 100 and I'd start over and just kept my cadence at a good place. It kept me focused on pushing my body and continuing that same effort level. And I know it sounds a little bit complicated, but in my book, I actually have a whole chapter on breathing and how to run on effort by utilizing this sort of strategy. And so it's, you breathe in two steps and out two steps, and that's one. So it's every fourth step. So into, out to, into, out to. And I do this in every race that I run and I do it in every workout that I do. And it really does help me stay really focused and engaged and you know, get the most out of myself on the day. It also allows me to recognize like what effort I am capable of on that day. Because if I can maintain that two-two breathing pattern, you know, then I know I'm not pushing too hard. I'm not crossing the red line. And so in races, I often won't look at my watch ever because I'm just engaged with what I'm doing. And I trust that I know that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing because I've practiced the effort with the breathing rhythm. So I think that's one thing that I find to be really helpful. You know, there's always a lot of different things you can think about when you're out there running. You know, for example, you're someone who would rather be focused on like external things. You don't want to think about how you're feeling. You know, there's surroundings, there's the pace car, there's people around you, there's you know, the view, whatever. There are some people who really enjoy like being distracted by music or podcasts or audiobooks. We actually had an athlete who has dealt with a lot of race anxiety and she was finding that she was like causing her heart rate to like spike while she was running because she was very stressed about Mm -hmm. 
she would look at her pace or she'd look at her heart rate or she'd like think about the race. And so for Chicago, she actually listened to an audiobook during Chicago and she ended up running a PR and it was a great day for her. And so again, everyone's kind of different with what they need out there. And for her, she needs to relax and just not overthink it. Just let her body do it while she was in tune with something else. You know, for me, I'm kind of the opposite where like, I only want to be in tune with myself. I kind of go into the zone. I block everything else out. So it's a little bit different, but you know, utilizing the mental strategies in that are going to work for you in your training is what's going to allow you to be ready on race day. So, you know, Whitney, like you and I, like I do most of my workouts by myself. So for you finishing that race, you can be like, okay, I'm going to really focus on, you know, staying mentally in tune and mentally engaged when I'm doing my workouts and my long runs. And, you know, maybe I set up a couple where I'm only doing them by myself so that I have forced myself to push out of the comfort zone and I can, you know, learn to stay more focused throughout. So, you know, that's something that you can kind of figure out, but yeah, it's kind of, yeah, no, that's helpful. Cause that like, I actually was focused. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, all in all, if I took my watch out of it, Mm -hmm. I would have felt really great about the day. You know, everything was amazing, but it was just like, my pace was way off, Mm -hmm. which then, you know, starts that negative spiral. Cause then you're like, well, cause my legs feel heavy. I'm fatigued. I, you know, had a hard training week and then oh gosh, but why can't you just go faster? Why can't you push yourself? And so I often find myself, and I think so many runners do, like that's the problem is that mental chatter kicks in and you're in this negative spiral. So I would love to know, like I'm sure you probably don't deal with that as much now because you're such a well-trained athlete, but like when you were younger, how were you able to just turn that off and just stay focused? I guess using your breath and counting your steps. Is that how you were able to do it? Yeah, that was in college for my coaching minor. One of the classes I took was sports psychology, and I was just fascinated by it. I was like, this is so applicable to what I do. And I started every Friday, I would have lunch with my professor, and she would work with me like one-on-one. That's amazing. And so we did that for years when I was in college. And then after graduation, like we still email back and forth you know, 10 years later, she came to my wedding. (laughs) She's, you know, been an integral part of my successes. And I think her strategies that she's kind of helped me implement over time has been really beneficial. So for example, the mind can only think about so many things at once. So if you start going down a negative spiral, that's where your body is going to go is in a negative direction. So really focusing on positive thoughts, switching those negative things that are kind of popping up and having some like mantras prepared, having some like memories from your training cycle. Like maybe there was one day that you felt so good and you did this workout, you surprised yourself, like tuck that away. Remember that you can even write it in your, you know, training diary, or you can journal it or you can make an Instagram post that you can go back to, whatever it is that you want. Yeah, that's my journal is my Instagram. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whatever it is that you want to go back to, because then as soon as you start to go on that downward, you can be like, no, no, remember this workout. Okay, channel that day, channel this energy, stay really focused on you know how you felt in that moment, and we're going to get our body back on track. You know, thinking through some positive mantras that you can utilize throughout the course, because in a race, like if you are running, it's inevitable that at some point it's going to get hard. And at some point you have a decision, do I continue to push or do I let my brain say, eh, we're out of the comfort zone. So we're just going to back off. And at that moment, you need to have a, no, I, I got this sort of thing. And so one of the things that you can do is utilize you instead of I. So research has suggested that we respond better when someone else tells us we can do it. So if someone else cheers, you got this, your brain is going to register it better than if you're just saying, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And so 
if you talk to yourself as someone else, you talk to yourself as a coach, for example, and you're like, okay, you got this, you can do hard things, you can get up this hill, you know, whatever it may be, that is going to be more effective. So sometimes it's even just things around a little bit. Another important thing you could do is kind of think through some keywords that you kind of have said to yourself before, or maybe ways that you've explained things over time. So it's kind of a personal sort of thing. But, you know, for example, if you're like, okay, you know, my legs feel fatigued, you can change that into, you know, a more positive spin on it. They're getting stronger. My body is getting stronger. I am going to continue to push today. And they can be like, you got this legs, you got this legs. And that can be something that gets you through. You can repeat it over and over. So as you're tired, you're thinking of that one thing that's positive, that's keeping you moving forward. I feel like that will help too with excuses. Cause I find myself making excuses. Like you know, well, I'm not going to give my best or it's almost like I turn into a, like a toddler, like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to push any harder. My excuse is that my legs are tired or I am by myself or it was a really hilly course. Like, so I think that kind of turning that off and then finding the positive of, I don't, yes, these hills are making my legs stronger. Yes, my legs are fatigued. They're working hard. They're getting, you know, they're, they're carrying me through. Like that would help. Do you have any other way to like handle when that part of your brain is kicking in and making the excuses for telling yourself it's okay that you're not going further into the pain cave? You're like, ah, just outside the entrance is okay for me right now. Yeah. You know, that's something that comes with race maturity. So Hmm. someone who is recognizing that's happening during races, likely you probably need to race more often. So I think Steve Magnus has a post about this somewhere in all of his wisdom, but there's, you know, that quote that's like, you know, it doesn't get easier, you just get stronger. And it's actually not true. It does get easier. You mentally, when you kind of push beyond that barrier of the comfort zone, your brain starts to recognize, oh, we're actually okay. We actually got this. We, we're fine. And then it sends off those alarms later the next time. And then later time after that. So, you know, at first, at the beginning of a season, for example, maybe you do a rust buster race and you're like, oh, I felt terrible the whole time. <laughs> that was yeah. terrible. You know, like my brain and my body triggered those alarms really early on that like we are not okay pushing out of the comfort zone. And then maybe a month later, you do another one. You're like, okay, I made it to halfway feeling good. And then I started to have the alarms go off. And then maybe you do a a race, you know, a month after that. And it's like, oh, well, you know, it didn't happen till the final mile. And so as you progress throughout a season, you know, in some of my best races, I felt awesome the whole way. I felt really strong. I haven't had that, you know, where the alarms were triggered. And it's because you trained your body as well as your brain to be okay being out of the comfort zone and to recognize that that's okay, that it's okay. And so ultimately, when we're looking at a whole training cycle, like we want to practice over and over and over these things that are also, you know, training us physically fit, but also mentally fit. So that we put it all together and we have the whole package. One thing that I've tried doing in these two races that I think helped kind of push past that comfort zone or push the wall a little bit farther is surges. So like when I feel myself kind of settling, I'll just like pick it up and tell myself I'm going to sprint ahead of this person in front of me or this trash can or, you know, for just sprint for the next 30 seconds or whatever. And that like really helps kind of teach your brain like, oh, actually, the, it doesn't hurt that bad. You have more in you than you realize. Absolutely. I don't know. So Amy Craig was always famous for doing that. You could always tell whenever she was starting to fatigue because she would throw in a search and she would change gears. Sometimes it actually can work as like a muscle trigger too, because When you're kind of locked into a rhythm, you're utilizing the exact same muscles over and over. If you're extending your stride, trying to run a little bit faster, you're pumping the arms more, your stride length increases, your knee drive might come up a little bit more, the glutes engage. And so sometimes it can trigger that body response to be like, 
oh, okay, we got this. We can go. And sometimes you can. Sometimes you're like, oh yeah, the, the extra gear is here and I actually feel better doing this because I had kind of fatigued out at where I was. So one way that you can practice this, and this is something I like to do with my athletes and myself is every other weekend, I do a workout within my long run. And so you're, you know, fatiguing your body. It's the end of the week. And then like last weekend, for example, I did 21 and starting at mile 13 and a half, I did 16 by one minute hard on 90 seconds easy. And I'm not talking like all out sprint. I'm talking like, you know, 10K half marathon type of for the one minute. And then keeping that 90 seconds kind of moving. You're not like jogging. Like a cruise interval. Exactly. So I think I was running like, you know, 510 or so for the one minute and then like six. 30, 6.50 for the 90 seconds. And repeating that over and over and over at the end of a long run can really help your body to be able to handle, you know, an increase in pace in the second half of your race, you know, setting yourself up for a negative split, being able to handle those surges that can surround water stations and all of that, being able to handle, you know, if someone starts to put in a move and you want to respond. And so it teaches the body to be able to kind of clear, you know, the byproducts out, the lactic acid, all that with those surges, you know, a little hill pops up and you have to be able to respond. And so all those things, you know, can be kind of prepared for in training as well. So I feel like the whole like moral of this conversation is, Practice, 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 practice. Okay. Well, my last question then is something that you can kind of practice for, but it's not predictable. So what do you do when something goes wrong? Like I ran the wrong direction in my half marathon a few weeks ago in Murfreesboro. Like the guy waved me in the wrong way. And so I went, ended up running a quarter mile off track. And at that point, I'm like, well, there goes my PR, right. you know? And so I wrestled with myself for a while to get back in what, or you have to go to the bathroom or your shoe comes untied or like you're whatever, like, how do you make the decision of, okay, I'm going to stop and tie my shoe and I'm not going to freak out about the 30 seconds that I lost or whatever. Like, how do you handle when stuff doesn't go your way and just like deal with it and then move on and not obsess over it and let it like completely wreck your mental state? Totally. So yeah, this is not something that you necessarily practice a ton. Every now and again, we get kind of some wrenches thrown our way, right? You know, like kids homesick. And so all of a sudden the workout you're going to do is now on the treadmill, whatever. But, you know, I think the biggest thing in this situation is you have to compartmentalize. And that is a strategy that you can practice in different ways. So you have to be able to say, okay, I have to stay in the moment right now. I need to stop tie my shoe. And then I'm going to totally forget about this. And I'm going to move into the next mile. Like nothing happened. And I'm just going to stay focused on where I'm at at that point. And I'm going to carry on the race and I'm not going to let this like come back in and haunt me later. So, you know, there's the ability to practice this, you know, doesn't arise every day like some of these other things, but this definitely can, you know, certainly play a role, even with just kind of like focusing on being present. You know, it's like this morning I went for my run. I was focused on my run. I came back, I had breakfast, I got changed, showered, switched over into the mode to do this, you know, and I'm, you know, as soon as this is over, I'm going to get, you know, Rome and I'm going to be mom until he goes down for that. I'm going to switch into coach mode because I have 16 training plans that need to write. And so it's like kind of compartmentalizing each of those aspects of my day so that I can stay really present and focused on each of them when I'm in it, but then not carry it over into the next thing that I'm doing. I mean, I think that's an excellent life skill and actually like can be practiced a lot in different facets. Like, oh, you know, my toddler just have an epic meltdown, but I'm not going to let that shake me off my game. Like we're going to deal with it. We're going to move on and we're going to have a great day. Totally. totally. And I think that is something that is really beneficial. Like I got, I fell in a race one time and I totally freaked out. It was terrifying. It was like a midnight race. 
in the dark and I just got like trampled <laughs> and it was the first like hundred meters and I totally freaked out and I ran like way too fast the first mile trying to catch back up to the leaders and so I got beat at the end and I threw my race away and it was just kind of a mess. And that was a really good learning opportunity. That was, you know, a moment where it was like, okay, when this happens in the future, I am going to stay really relaxed. I'm going to stay really calm. I'm going to get back up. I'm going to start jogging. I'm going to assess my body, make sure nothing is hurt. I'm going to work back into the pace that I know I can run. And then I'm going to forget about it. I'm going to focus on my breathing. I'm going to find my right rhythm and I'm going to compete with who's around me on the day. And so, you know, that was a time where I didn't do what I needed to do. And, you know, it didn't pan out that great. I ran in 2013, I ran the world championships for cross country in Poland. And I feel like this was one of the biggest like mental breakthroughs that I have had in my career. And I feel like that was kind of the race that has like given me a lot better perspective for all my races since. So the race course was in like eight inches of snow it went up and down a ski slope and it was like, oh so it was like not an easy course at all. There were like a billion turns. There were like all these moguls, there was mud, there were logs. Oh my goodness. Why did they choose this? I mean, it is truly cross country. This is European style cross country. They love crazy stuff. And so the night before I was like, a lot of things can go wrong on this course. Like I could get stepped on, I could lose a shoe, I could fall, you know, I was going through like the list of like all the things that could go wrong. And I was like, not freaking out about it. I wasn't like, Oh, my God, I'm so scared. All these things could go wrong. It was like, okay, I need to be prepared. If any of these things happen, there are a lot of things that, you know, are not just part of normal racing that are occurring on this course. And so I kind of thought through, okay, if any of these things happen, I'm just going to stay really calm. I'm going to put my shoe back on. I'm going to continue forward. If I fall, I'm just going to get back up. I'm going to see if anything's hurt and then I'm going to keep going. So I kind of had to break things down, recognize that some stuff may not go according to plan. However, that was going to be okay. So I did the best I could. I like duct tape my shoes onto my feet. I had one inch spikes in the front so that I could have grip. I lathered my body in Vaseline because it was cold and the snow. And if I fell, like I'd have a little bit of protection on my skin. And I stayed so focused on just me performing to the best that I could on that day in those conditions. I wasn't thinking about what anyone else was doing. I was just trying to get the most out of myself with every step. And I ended up having one of the best races of my life. I placed 13th. I was the top American. You know, I was on a team with multiple Olympians, Dina Castor, Kim Conley. It was really, really special for me on that day. And at the end of it, I realized it was because I was prepared mentally that if anything didn't go my way, it was still going to be okay. And I could only control myself. And so, and my attitude and my approach to what was happening out there. And I feel like it made all the difference on that day. And so from that time forward, I've pretty much entered every race with that attitude of like, all right, I can only control myself. I have no idea what anyone else is ready to do today. If we can work together, that'll be great because we can bring the most out of out of each other, but it's also okay if I wind up running 10 miles of the New York City Marathon by myself. Yeah, I I feel like, yeah, that's a very important lesson and it does come with maturity is the ability to trust yourself. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of these, like obviously these insecurities, these issues come because you haven't been through it. You haven't proven to yourself that you got it. And so just learning you don't maybe if you don't have a lot of races under your belt but you can look at your training we all inevitably encounter obstacles in our training and look and reflecting on those obstacles that you overcame to get your training run in or you know excel at whatever workout you had that day so yeah i think that's a really important point that it and also like especially as moms you know everything we do is pretty much for other people and to just like hold tight that this is for you and you just focus yeah focus on yourself and what is best for you on that day yep 
And ultimately, that's how we're going to do our best, right? Like, that's how you're going to get the most out of you. And so, you know, yeah, like, again, if we are circling back to the watch conversation from the beginning, like, maybe it's a good idea to not even wear a watch. Or maybe it's a good idea to make a point not to look at it or set it to cadence or something that like, you know, isn't going to trigger those negative thoughts or like, you know, maybe, you know, not having the mile splits pop up would be beneficial for you. If that's something that like will get you kind of down or distract you from just focusing on what you need out there. You know, Emily Sisson just broke the American record at Chicago and she looked at her watch one time. You hear that a lot, like a lot of pros do not because they listen to their body. And I think it, again, like that comes with race experience that, you know, that not every race is created equal. Like even if you run the same race course on a different day, it's going to be a different experience because there are just so many variables at play. Exactly. Yeah, it's so true. And at the end of the day, like if you get the most out of your body, you're going to be happy with it. Like you're not going to be disappointed with optimizing yourself on the day. So like maybe just decrease whatever distraction might be kind of causing some of the negative spiral, because if you can't change like your pace and you, and it's not helping you to know what it is Mm. there, then maybe it's just a data feedback that you don't need. Totally. I think, yeah, in many situations, it's wise to demote the watch. Because we hold so we put so much power and importance on the watch. At least I know I do. I try not to. I'm way better than I used to be. But yeah, you're right. Like today, I'm super sore. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't run as fast as I was supposed to yesterday, I'm like, okay, well, it's actually it's good that I'm sore because that means that I I did push myself. Yeah, and sometimes we don't have great days. Sometimes that happens. Mm-hmm. But your goal is still to get the most out of yourself, even in your not so great day. You know, like, yeah, things may yeah exactly according to plan. You may not feel as good as you wanted to feel, but like you still just want to run the best that you can on the day, given the circumstances and whatever. So yeah. And it should be end of story then be proud of yourself. Yes, exactly. And, you know, another thing with all of this is like, you know, when it's your goal race, like you don't really have a choice, but to show up on the day. And if you're not feeling great, like. Sometimes we have to adapt and we have to adjust the goals. And I get that. Like if you're sick, then, you know, you have to make changes. If weather's, you know, not conducive to running fast, like you're going to be adjusting the pace. But all of those factors still come down to, okay, if I'm going to toe the line, I just want to get out of myself what I can on this day. And it just decreases, you know, a lot of chatter and it really simplifies things because it doesn't have to be complicated and it doesn't have to be overwhelming and it doesn't have to be confusing. It can just be, you know what, go out, run, see how it goes. Trust that you got out of yourself what you needed to on the day. And races like, you know, Chicago, for example, like GPS data is bad anyways. Yeah. Like it doesn't give you accurate splits. So if you're relying on your watch to tell you what pace you're running, like, you're screwed. <laughs> you're hosed. Yeah. You have to be really confident in your effort level. And I think that just goes to every race, but especially races like that, where, you know, you need to be comfortable with it. And so for me, like in training, I never go into a workout with a pace in mind. I'm like, okay, here's my workout, go feel it out, see what it ends up being. And that's worked really well for me. Again, back to the whole altitude thing. Like I able to adapt. I recognize that, you know, my paces here are going to be different than if I was training at sea level, etc. And so it always comes down to effort. Yes. I love that style of training. I feel like, I don't know, it's kind of hard, like if you're used to having certain paces or paces given to you, it's a tricky shift to make. I love all those points because I think they really help like strengthen or see that running can strengthen like your self-compassion mm-hmm. muscle. Like I, running is, is tricky because it, it can, it can easily go to the other side where you're just too hard on yourself and you put place too much importance on things like paces and finish times, but it's also a wonderful opportunity to be proud of yourself and give yourself grace and be compassionate with yourself. Neely, you are awesome. There are so many great tips and tricks and all your athletes are so lucky to call you coach. So 
Oh, well, I hope that we get to see each other. We'll have to connect before CIM to see if we can make that happen. I'm staying out in Folsom. Is that where you're staying? Or are you going to stay? We're staying to finish. finish. Yeah. Okay. Just, yeah, that was a tough decision. I was like, oh, I just, I know myself and I'm not going to be stressed about like getting to the start line mm-hmm. in the morning. So yeah, well, I'm so glad that you're healthy and that you're feeling good and it's awesome. I think last time we talked, you were still dealing with your hamstring stuff. So I'm glad to hear that you're in a good spot now. Thank you. Yeah, the same to you. And I love hearing that your buildup is going great. And can't wait to see what happens in Indy and in Sacramento, like a few weeks after that, or I guess about a month after that. So yeah, I know it's really coming up quick, isn't it? It is. I know it's kind of it's like you're anxious, you're ready for it to get here. And then you're like, Oh, my goodness, it's getting close. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Neely, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. You bet. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Neely, and thank you all for listening to The Passionate Runner. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any of the resources we mentioned are available at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from the episodes, please leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash The Passionate Runner. We'll read these out on future episodes. Talk to you next time. <laughs>